following sermon was delivered at the 1030 worship service at the United Methodist Church of Kent. Please enjoy. is the beginning of a new sermon series entitled God's Answer to the World's Need. Throughout the biblical story, one of the most common human experiences and responses in the midst of God's activity is that people are surprised by God. Moses was certainly surprised to encounter a divine voice coming to him out of a burning bush. The prophet Ezekiel was surprised to have a glorious vision of God as he sat despondently in exile in Babylon. Disciples very likely were surprised to be called to follow Jesus. The story of Christmas is itself one of extraordinary surprise as God acts in a way that people were not expecting. It's hard for us today to keep that element of surprise in our celebrations of Christmas. And we try, of course, to have some surprise in the, the gifts that we offer to one another. But for the most part, our celebrations of Christmas are carefully scripted. And we have all sorts of traditional patterns that we like to follow in our family celebrations, our church celebrations, and there is something comforting and meaningful about doing the same rituals each year. But in order to get the full sense of what really happens at Christmas, we need to get past our desire to have everything under control and everything in what we think is its proper place. We need to be receptive to being surprised by God. That'll be our theme this morning. Let's be in a moment in the spirit of prayer. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. In the days leading up to the birth of Jesus, people were expecting the Messiah. Their anticipation is reflected in our anticipation of Christmas Day, and they thought that they knew the script. The word Messiah in Hebrew is Mashiach, which means the anointed one. In Old Testament days, the word had especially come to be used to describe the kings of Israel. The prophet Samuel had anointed Saul to be the first king and subsequently anointed David as king. Ever since then, all the kings were anointed. Each king was thus a Mashiach, an anointed one. Anointing with oil was a sign of divine blessing and empowerment for kingship. The line of kings ended in Israel with the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonian Empire in 587 BC. But 500 years later, people began to expect that God would send the Messiah, the Anointed One, who would fulfill prophetic visions such as one in the book of Daniel. I saw one like son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. People began to expect a divinely anointed king who would far surpass all others before him. On Palm Sunday, therefore, the people who lined the streets in Jerusalem would acclaim Jesus, saying, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And what did kings in the ancient world do? 
Well, they ruled, of course, and above all, they fought and defeated their enemies. King David, the quintessential king in the history of Israel, was a general who won a decisive victory over the Philistines, the long-standing enemies of Israel. The Caesars were likewise the leaders of armies. Caesar Augustus, the Caesar at the time of Jesus' birth, came to power through a military victory over his rival Mark Antony, and throughout his reign, he advanced military campaigns to expand the empire. People therefore expected that the Messiah, as the ultimate king, would be a warrior who would defeat Rome and who in his power would establish global rule. But they were surprised by God. God's actual action was foreseen by the prophet Isaiah, who wrote the Old Testament scripture that we heard this morning. This is the first of four so-called servant songs in Isaiah, which describe a coming savior. As the servant songs progress, they eventually describe what Jesus would do on the cross with quite uncanny precision, although they were written more than 500 years before Jesus. Isaiah would say, my servant had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. We held him of no account. That does not sound like a mighty king. Isaiah describes a servant figure who would come in loneliness and vulnerability. Isaiah goes on to describe how this servant would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sake of the world. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By perversion of justice he was taken away. For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich reflecting the fact that Jesus would be crucified with robbers, but buried finally in a rich man's tomb, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. None of this is a description of a triumphant warrior. The nature of Jesus' overall ministry is reflected in the earlier servant songs. As the verses that we heard said, here is my servant whom I uphold. I have put my spirit upon him he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will not grow faint until he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his teaching. The servant will bring forth justice, but he will do so through gentleness and mercy. A bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will not act for the sake of a particular nation, but for the sake of the whole world. The term coastlands refers to lands far away from Israel, foreign lands on the far side of the sea. And his impact will be made through his teaching. Obviously, the picture that people had in their minds of the Messiah did not correspond to any of this. And the reason is because when they thought of the Messiah, when they imagined the Messiah, they did not have Isaiah's verses in mind. 
Isaiah had never specifically used the term Mashiach in his suffering servant songs, and people simply did not think that the Messiah could be that kind of self-giving figure. Jesus once presented to his disciples the real picture. He told them that he would have to suffer and die for the sake of the world, but they simply could not accept it. The Gospels report that Peter rebuked Jesus. They were all expecting that triumphant warrior messiah. Their thinking was reflected in the second scripture reading we heard this morning. There we are told that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem and was passing through Samaria. Some of his followers went on ahead to prepare overnight lodgings for him in a Samaritan village. We need to remember that the Samaritans were a group of people who hated the Jews, and the Jews in return hated the Samaritans. They had ethnic and religious differences, and the Samaritans particularly resented the Jewish claim that Jerusalem is the central place where people ought to worship. They therefore had no interest in helping this Jewish man who apparently was on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They barred Jesus from their city. Jesus' disciples were furious. In their view, the Samaritans were being mean-spirited and were, were just, just acting contrary to all goodness. So, James and John, two of Jesus' more hot-headed disciples, said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to bid fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That statement is a reference to an earlier biblical story in the book of 2 Kings. There we find an account of how the prophet Elijah was once threatened by the wicked King Ahaziah. King Ahaziah sent a captain with 50 men to arrest, Jesus, or arrest Elijah. The captain approached with great arrogance and ordered Elijah to surrender himself. But Elijah said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. At that moment, the Bible continues, Fire came down from heaven and consumed the captain and his 50. This happened two times until the third captain who was sent decided it would be advisable to take a different approach. He knelt before Elijah and asked for mercy and his life was spared. As the disciples looked in their own day at those arrogant and unjust Samaritans, they thought now would be a good time for God to send down some more fire from heaven. It is common human thinking. We are often inclined to wish God's judgment on people whose behavior seriously irritates us. The Samaritans were indeed acting wrongly. They were refusing to show hospitality to Jesus. But Jesus rebuked the disciples for their vindictiveness. It is possible that the rebuke included this statement by Jesus. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. That line appears in some very ancient manuscripts of the New Testament and not in others, and scholars debate whether it was really a part of the original Gospel of Luke, but in any case, it well expresses what Jesus was about. Jesus was not a warrior who would come to destroy his enemies. He was that gentle, vulnerable, self-giving servant described by Isaiah who had come to save the world. Jesus thus provides 
a radical model for us. It's notable that Jesus' statement to the disciples about how he would have to suffer and die for the sake of humanity was spoken shortly before this incident in Samaria. The disciples, however, just could not grasp this idea that Jesus, and by implication his followers, were to be self-giving servants. They wanted a fire from heaven sort of God. In Elijah's day, God had sent fire from heaven upon a few evildoers who were threatening Elijah, showing that God will act with power to protect the faithful. But Jesus makes clear that God's answer to the sin of the world is redemption. As it is said in the Gospel of John, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Human beings, however, often struggle with the idea that the pathway of God is vulnerability and sacrifice and redemption. People would rather have fire from heaven on those that they do not like, and today, people typically don't wait for God. Russia is sending fire from heaven on Ukrainians that they despise every day in the form of all the missiles that are raining down on Ukrainian cities. Many Russians claim Orthodox faith but like the disciples, they just don't get it. Following the crucifixion and the resurrection, the disciples were forced to think anew about what Jesus had said and to look afresh at scriptures such as Isaiah, and they realized finally who Jesus is. He is indeed the messianic king, but he is a king who expresses power through self-giving love. With their understanding enlightened and their hearts changed, the disciples would embark in the way of Jesus, that way of lowliness and self-giving, and they ultimately transformed the Roman world. The experience of the disciples should move us to be cautious whenever we think that we've gotten God figured out. God surprised the world at Christmas because God acted in a way that was very different from the picture of God that people had formed in their own minds. People in Judea and Galilee, including the disciples, thought that the picture they had of God's Messiah was biblically based, but there were elements of scripture, such as those passages in Isaiah, that they were missing. And so, at first, they just could not understand what God was doing in Jesus. I've had the experience in my own faith journey of thinking that I had God's word figured out and then being moved, like the disciples, to see things in an entirely new way. One area where that happened for me was in thinking about human sexuality. Early in my ministry, I was convinced that same-sex relationships were wrong contrary to what seemed to me to be the plain teaching of scripture. Then, I was prompted to see things differently, and it happened in the course of teaching disciple Bible study. I began to realize that I had been missing some things in scripture, and that I had been misinterpreting some passages because I'd been viewing them out of preconceptions with which I had grown up. I was moved to an entirely new perspective. 
All that is outlined in my book, God's Word on Human Sexuality. I was by no means the only pastor in the United Methodist Church to come over time to new perspective on this issue. Earlier this month, across the United States, United Methodist jurisdictional conferences met. These are regional conferences whose primary purpose is to elect bishops. We are in the North Central jurisdiction. There's also a Northeastern jurisdiction, a Southeastern jurisdiction, a South Central jurisdiction, and a Western jurisdiction representing different regions of the country. These jurisdictional conferences, made up of representatives of United Methodists from every state, elected a few weeks ago a total of 13 new bishops to replace bishops who were retiring. Every bishop elected across the country was someone who believes that the church should fully welcome and affirm LGBTQ persons and their relationships. But not everyone agrees, and as you probably know, there are some who are leaving our denomination over this issue. Some churches are disaffiliating and joining a new denomination that they call the Global Methodist Church. Last June at our annual conference, 11 churches disaffiliated. Now that was out of a total of 700 churches in our ESOA conference, and all, the, the, all of the disaffiliating churches were themselves quite small. We expect a few more disaffiliations next summer. In the West Ohio conference recently, 80 churches disaffiliated, which is about 10% of the total number of churches in the West Ohio Conference. And actually corresponds somewhat with national figures, less than 10% of churches have uh, to date disaffiliated. These numbers are much smaller than it was once thought that they might be, but any kind of division in the church is a sad development. Whenever there is strife in the church, there can easily be a feeling of animosity towards those on the other side. People might wish some fire from heaven to fall on those folks, but surely Jesus would bring us to a different approach. Significantly, our bishop has encouraged everyone to recognize that the United Methodist Church is a big tent. We have room for people of different perspectives and different views on the Bible and many subjects to respect one another and to continue to be in fellowship together. In this respect, what Jesus did in that gospel story is quite notable. Jesus was on his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. The land of Samaria lay in between Galilee and Jerusalem. Most Jews in that day, if they were traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem, would take a looping route across the Jordan River to avoid going through Samaria because Jews despise Samaritans and Samaritans despise Jews and they just want to avoid each other. They both actually looked to God's word in the Torah, but they had major differences of opinion about how to understand and follow the Torah. And those differences had formed a huge wall of division between them. So what did Jesus do? He instructed his disciples that they were going straight through Samaria. And when the inhabitants of one town rejected him, they went on to another village. Jesus broke right through the barriers to seek 
to be in fellowship. This certainly is a model for us. Where we have differences, Jesus leads us not to call down the fire of judgment on each other. He leads us to call down the fire of the Holy Spirit, which would move us to reconciliation and to follow Jesus in his way of humility and working together in God's grace and God's compassion for the world. In many ways in life, we can get into patterns of thinking with certain expectations for how we think God should act. The biblical story prompts us to realize that we should be ready to be surprised by God because God is always much greater than our human perceptions. And God is often acting in ways that are well beyond where we are and what we may imagine. Perhaps in this season of Advent, we need, as Jesus once said, to be like children, because on Christmas morning, children are all geared for happy surprises. So we can be open to the many kinds of grace-filled surprises that God has in store for us. Let us pray. Eternal God, we give thanks that you have entered into our world not with judgment, not with violence, but with redeeming love. You have come to us in Jesus. You have come to touch our hearts and lives. We thank you, Lord, that though we experience brokenness in many ways, though we have challenges and, and strife all around us, that you are here with healing mercy. You are here to work within us with your uplifting grace. You are here to guide us to be able to live in fullness of life as your people to know ourselves, to be received and accepted by you and your grace, to know ourselves to be your people and to be led then by you to live as your people in our world today. Open our hearts, O oh God, that your spirit of love might flow through us, inspiring us to have new visions, new understanding, new ways of living, that, Lord, we may join with you and share in how your spirit would work through our lives today. We give thanks, Lord, for the church, for the way that you draw us into fellowship with one another. We pray for our United Methodist Church in these days in a time of discord and division, praying that you would lead us to find that kind of unity in the spirit that you intend for us, praying that you would guide us to be able to follow with you in the fresh ways that you are guiding us in these days. Move us, Lord, as we join in mission together, as we reach out to persons in times of need, lifting up those who are in times of illness, praying especially today for Morgan Kloss, Karen Andrews, and for Matt Maloney, praying for your healing power. Praying also for those who are mourning, lifting up especially the family and friends of Tina Farrell, giving thanks, Lord, for her years of connection with the life of this congregation. We lift up prayers for our broader United Methodist Church, and particularly this morning, pray for the fellow United Methodists of the Green Valley United Methodist Church, we thank you, Lord, that you lead us today to be your disciples, that we can join with one another to show forth your grace and your compassion for the world. Inspire us, Lord, in times of trouble, in times of strife in the world at large, in times in which people are dealing with the great challenges, to know that we find our true hope in you, that we can look to you for your strength and saving power, 
that we can open ourselves to your grace today, that we can follow you and find new life and the promise of life eternal as we share together as your disciples. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this edition of the United Methodist Church of Kent Sermon Podcast. For more information about the church, visit www.kentmethodist.org.